Amen. I love the Shidlers. You just met them on the video. When they came here, there was just three of them, okay? And they left with five of them, a family of five, moving to Morgantown. And here's what I want you to hear, and I hope you heard it, is that they said, this is what we say here, that they basically said that they were religiously lost. That's a, that's a concept, and that's a really big reality here in Winston-Salem, and specifically in the Southeast in general. It, here's what it means. I want you to understand this. It means, and it, of course, in a room like this, in size this room, and hello in the lobby, and hello online, are there religiously lost people in this room right now? Absolutely, no question. What does it mean to be religiously lost? It means that you're in church, but you're not in Christ. It means maybe that you've been baptized at some point, but you don't really personally really believe it might mean that you are convinced at some level about Christianity as true, but you've not been converted at the heart level. And here's what it normally means. It normally means that you have settled for attendance instead of transformation. That's what that means. You've decided, I would rather show up than just be changed. And so we, we just want to be so clear about this because we believe the gospel changes people. That's what you heard. You heard Jimmy and Leah go, uh, my whole life, our whole marriage, our whole family, the way we view everything has changed when we met Jesus. He changed everything about us and we say amen to that. That's so powerful. Amen. And so, uh, and here's the other thing that we're learning with people like the Shidlers. And that story, by the way, that's a version of that kind of story happens about once a month in our church where somebody then is leaving. This is why, by the way, uh, you know, we, we hold, we love people deeply, but we hold them loosely. Uh, some of you are going to be, you know, in Winston the rest of your life. Welcome. We're glad you're here, okay? <laughs> uh, many of you, we know this. Many of you, this actually, by the way, affects how I even think about preaching and the books we're going to preach and, and how long we're going to stay in a book is that most of you are going to be here for three to five years. You're going to be here for three to five years for medical school, for residency, for undergrad, till you get married, till you have to take care of your parents, then you're going to move somewhere else. And, and our hope is that everybody can leave well and be sent well like the Shidlers. Here's what the Shidlers basically said. Drop us anywhere in the world and we're going to walk with God. Isn't that amazing? All right, we'll drop you in, unfortunately, West Virginia. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're going to, and I love that. In fact, I, I got to read this to you. He sent me and Pastor Dave, Jimmy did, a text uh, about two or three weeks ago. And here's what the text said. They, they had just gotten settled up in West Virginia. Remember, when he came here, he was not a believer. He sent me this text. Good morning, men. I wanted to touch base with you both about our move to Morgantown. We've tried two churches, and we think we found a home at Mountain Heights Church. The worship is all biblically driven and Jesus-centered. A big answer to our prayers. Looks like you're thriving as expected. Still listening to sermons up here. Keep up the good work and all of the discipleship brothers. Amen. Let's take a moment. Let's pray for the Scheidlers. The Scheidlers are now a family of five, viewing themselves as missionaries in West Virginia. What does that mean for you and me? It means that wherever we are, because most of us aren't leaving right now, so the call is for us to leverage, leverage where we are for Christ and his kingdom. Let's take a moment and pray for the Scheidlers. Lord, we, we want to honor them. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the scripture talks about when you send people out, honor them. Lord, I want to honor Jimmy and Leah. Thank you for letting them shoot a video and bless us. Thank you for converting both of them, changing their hearts, changing their minds, changing their destinies, changing their eternities. Thank, look at the beautiful picture of Jimmy baptizing Leah. Lord, thank you for the ways that you're connecting him to a healthy church. We thank you that, that, in, that in the city of Morgantown, there's healthy, Jesus-centered, Bible-saturated, missions-minded churches. Lord, we pray for Morgantown, West Virginia. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would go forward. We pray that, that there would be no religiously lost people in this church. That people, that everybody who's in this church would find themselves in Christ. 
Lord, we pray that everybody who leaves this church, whenever it's time, that they are sent, and wherever they, are, wherever they find themselves next, they're able to walk with God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, you can turn to type to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're new with us, we're walking through 1 Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthian church was one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament. They've got lots of problems, lots of pains, lots of pressures, just like all of us. And, but Paul's incredibly hopeful. So if you'll turn to chapter 4, I'll meet you there in a few minutes. Uh, so here's what Paul's done so far. He has, he has believed that the church is to be a conversion community. That's what you saw in that video. We, this is, if you want to know, what do we want our church to be? A conversion community. What does that mean? A place where people experience grace. Uh, a place where lives are changed. A place where marriages are restored. A place where addictions are broken. A place where sins are forgiven. Uh, a place where people are given hope. Where there's healing and where there's health. That's what we want to be as a church. Paul believed that in such a thing as a, the church being a conversion community. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Peter Drucker. Uh, Peter Drucker was a very successful manager, business guy. Uh, you know, he's written many books. Uh, many people respect Peter Drucker. Um, he said that in his life, he only saw two environments that changed people's lives. He said this at the end of his life. He said, I've seen two environments that actually transformed and changed people's lives. He said, number one, AA. He said, I saw it, it makes a difference in most people's lives. If they'll commit to it, it changes them and it changes them long-term. He said, but number two is a healthy, functioning, biblical church. He said, I've never seen anything transform people's lives like a healthy local church functioning the way the Bible says it should. And that's our belief. So in chapter one, Paul says, I want to be a place of grace. I want people to not be divided, united. That was chapter one. Chapter two is, I want you to stop being ashamed of Christ. I want you to stop being ashamed of the cross I want you to stop being ashamed of what Christ has done for sinners. I want you to exalt it. I want you to boast in the cross. And then in chapter three last week, he said, I want you to grow up. Stop being a baby. Stop being childish. Stop being immature. It's time to be an adult. But we said last week, it's time to grow up. And don't worry, there's lots of grace. It takes time to grow. This week, we're going to talk about leadership. This is interesting. So in chapter four, verses one, Paul is going to tell the people how they should view him. Look at this, I want you to see this. We'll look at verse one here. He says this, Paul says this. This is how one should regard us. Who's us? The leaders of the church. So this is kind of an awkward conversation. <laughs> Paul, Paul's looking at the church going, I need to tell you as a leader how you should view me. Now this is, and take this parents, okay? Is it, is it good every once in a while for parents to remind their kids lovingly, humbly, how the kids should view them? I would say yes. I told you before, people get anxious and aimless if they don't know how, to, how leadership's working. So is it a good thing for a boss every once in a while to sit down and go, hey guys, I just want you to understand my role in your life. And I want you to understand your role in my life. Is it good for a pastor every once in a while to say, hey guys, I want you to understand how to view me as the pastor of this church. Is it good for a coach to sit down with his players and say, I want you to understand my role in your life as a coach. Is it good, but maybe scary, for the government <laughs> to tell us, hey, here's our role, right? It's like, this, this is helpful when leadership defines his role or her, when a leader defines his role or her role in a person's life. This is what Paul's doing. I want you to see this. Here's what he says. This is how one should regard us, the leaders of the church. But by the way, what a leader is, every Christian should be in some, to, to a different degree. He says this. Here's what we are. We are servants of Christ and we are stewards of the mystery of God. We're gonna cover this whole chapter, but we're gonna specifically talk about what does it mean to be a spiritual leader? Now, let me just say this to begin with. You cannot be a spiritual leader if you're not following Jesus. That's it. You can't be a spiritual leader if you're not following Jesus. Because here's what a spiritual leader is, really simply. A spiritual leader is somebody who's following Jesus and then looking behind them and beside them to help other people find and follow Jesus. That's it. And what we need, I want you to understand that the lid of every church is a lack of leadership. 
And so what we need in this church is more and more and more spiritual leaders. I want every dad to see himself as a spiritual leader or the spiritual leader of his home. We need more community group leaders. We need more elders. We need more staff. We need more volunteers. We need more people going, maybe I could coach a, a baseball team and have an influence. We need moms saying, maybe I could sit on a school board and I could be influential. We need more people viewing themselves as leaders. Now, let me tell you what you need to do when you view yourself as a leader. Some of you don't view yourself as a leader. Listen, anytime you have a meaningful relationship with another person, you have the potential for influence and influence and leadership are basically the exact same thing. So I wanna encourage you, everybody in here at some layer and at some level can be and is and should be a leader. So here's what I would, you know, some of you never take notes, that's fine. Um, but here's what I would write down. If you are taking notes, I would write down, here's the four questions you should be asking yourself as a leader. These are the four questions that you should be leading yourself with. These are the four questions you should be leading your kids with. The community group leaders, these are the four questions you should be leading your community group with. This is it. It's very, because, and it's all gonna be about people because that's what leadership's about. Leadership's about people. Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm here to serve you. I'm a steward. All I have is from God. So here's the four questions. Where are they? Where are the people under, under me? Where are they at? Where are they at spiritually? Where are they at financially? Where are they at emotionally? Where are they at in their marriage? Where are they at in their struggle with sin? I mean, don't take all those at once, but where are they? And then here's the deeper question. Why are they there? I remember I heard a guy, he told a story one time, he said his brother was completely addicted to Diet Coke or his friend was completely addicted to Diet Coke. And he was so frustrated with him for drinking like so many Diet Cokes. And he confronted him about it one day. And the guy said, I'm sorry, I started drinking these when my brother died. He loved Diet Coke. And when I drink Diet Coke, I feel close to him and it's gotten out of control in my life. It's like, well, okay, wow, okay. Now I know where you are, but I also know why you're there. That that's actually normally gives you a heart for people, gives you compassion for people. Oh, you're here because, understandably, you had an abusive dad. You're here because you were introduced to pornography when you were 10. Okay, I've got compassion. Where are you? Why are you there? Next, where would God like them to be? You know, where would God like them to be? Somewhere, hopefully, somewhere not where they are now, right? This is, leadership is moving people. That's what it is, lovingly. I'm moving people from where they are to where God would like them to be. And then the fourth question is, what is their next step? What is their next step? And that's all, and then you just do that for the rest of your life. You do that with yourself. You're honest with yourself. Where am I really? If you're a lead, you are the hardest person for you to lead. So where are you? Why are you there? Why are you still struggling with the same sins that you've been struggling with? The answer might be because I've never let one more person in. Oh, that's why I'm where I am. Where would God like me to be? That's where you search the scriptures and get a picture of the future. What's my next step? The next step is a step that you could take that you would take. That's the next step. And so Paul says, here's what a leader is. A leader is a steward and a servant, which by the way, verse one, this is gonna be the theme for a whole, whole, whole morning together. Um, it's the exact opposite of what the culture tells you a leader is, right? A servant, what is a servant? I'm here for you. My gifts are to serve you. I, I, I'm here for other people. I'm here for God's glory and the good of other people. I, I'm not here to build my own kingdom. And then what's a steward? A steward says, everything that I have belongs to God. And it's a great gift. And maybe I get seven or eight decades and I get two or three kids and I get one career and I get a few gifts and I get health for a decent amount. That's what I get. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take those two things. And here, here's, here's what we're doing today. We're moving, chapters one through three is, how do I live in light of the cross? That's chapters one, two, and three of 1 Corinthians. Chapter four is how do I lead in light of the cross? 
Because when Paul's going to describe his leadership, it's like, it sounds a lot like Jesus. Can you think of another servant and a steward? Paul's going to talk about why he suffers and why he sacrifices so much. Why he gives up so much. Why he puts up with so much. It's his view of leadership. Here's the, here's the, here's, here's the sermon in a question. Here's the text in a question. Are you more crown-centered in your leadership or more cross-centered in your leadership? Crown-centered is, it's all about me, it's all about my kingdom, it's all about, being a leader is how many people can be under me to serve me so that I can build my kingdom. That's crown-centered leadership. Cross-centered leadership is, I'm not about myself, I'm about serving others, I'm about building God's kingdom, and I'm willing to sacrifice, serve, and suffer to do it. That's a crown, that's a cross-centered leader versus a crown-centered. So let's unpack this together. I want you to look at me again one more time at verse one. Here's what he says. Um, he says, this is how one should regard us. Because people are confused about spiritual leaders, right? I, I remember when I grew up, I, was, I told you I grew up nominal Catholic. I remember looking at the priest feeling bad for them. Thinking this guy's poor, he lives at the church, he wears the same outfit, he can never get married. That, that's basically how I viewed spiritual leadership. And Paul says, it's good, right? When people meet me and it comes up, especially if they're not in the church, and they find out that I'm a pastor. It's a super awkward conversation for both of us every time. And they do the same thing every time. They stop cussing and tell me the one religious person they know. That's what they do every time. <laughs> okay, true story. Okay, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's gonna say this, and this is, I, I feel compelled every time this comes up in the scripture, even though it takes a moment for us to talk about it. Paul leads from an identity. You're going to live, you know this, or maybe you don't know this, so you need to know this. You're going to live and lead from an identity, from a way that you view yourself. Uh, so let me tell you a few things that you're not. Let me just, it's helpful to know what you're not, okay? So that you can know what you really are. Because Paul's, okay, Paul's gonna say, my identity's in Christ. It's that I'm his servant and I'm a steward of what he's given me, okay? Um, let me tell you what you're not. You are not the things that you have done. How many people find their identity in what they've done? Here's how you know that you find your identity in what you've done. You're either prideful or you're driven to despair. I mean, how many guys, how many arrogant business guys Let's just call it, you know, I know that church is no place to be honest, but let's just try for a second. Um, how many arrogant businessmen, they're arrogant, they're not Christians, and they're very hard to talk to about a need for salvation because they have been successful in one dimension of their life. They've found one little slice on earth where they know how to be successful and make money. And so they are what they have done. And it gives them all their value, all their significance, all their work. They're very hard to talk to. So that's one end of, of why I want to encourage you, you're not what you've done. And by the way, as a leader, you need to tell people they're not what they've done. Um, but let me say it this way. You're also not what you've done because a lot of us have done very terrible things. Right? I mean, would you want on a screen everything that you've done this week? Hey, we're going to put it on the screen right now. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> because here's the truth. You've done terrible things. You've looked at things. You've said things. You've thought things. You've acted in ways. And here's the good news of the gospel. You're not ultimately what you've done. How about this? You're not what people have done to you. And that's helpful to know. It, with people watching online and people in the lobby and people in, in a room this size, have terrible things happened to some people in this room? Absolutely. Have people been abused in this room? Of course. Have people been betrayed? Yes. Have people been experienced anger, unrighteous anger toward them? Of course they have in a room this size. And those, those can be a massive moments in your life that they often become markers. You'll meet people and they just can't recover. They can't recover to what happened to them at 16. They can't recover what happened to them at 24. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying part of what you realize is I'm not what others have done to me. 
In fact, what, what the cross does is it forgives me, but it also cleanses me. That's, it, it does both. The, the, the third thing is, you're not your sexual identity. And that has to be specifically said in the 21st century and in America, right? Because the LGBTQ movement agenda, all this, the bifurcation between sexuality and gender, who you go to bed as, which I think is your gender, who you go to bed with, your sexuality, that's they've tried to bifurcate all that. Um, the reason that it's becoming so big, the reason that Facebook had 50 different gender identities is because everybody's trying to make sexual identity the main thing about you, and it's not. Let me just be real quick. It's an important part about you. It's one dimension of your life. It can't hold the weight of being the main thing about you. So you're not your sexual identity. This is why so many high schoolers are confused. This is why, this, you know, the main identity crisis is, is, happens between 12 and 18 years old, and it's the, it's, it's the crisis in adolescence of who am I? That's the identity crisis. And the problem in our society is we're trying to tell everybody that they are their sexual identity, so you better figure it out. And there's 500 options. It's like, well, of course everybody's anxious and depressed. Uh, also, you're not your circumstances. Some of you are so defined by your circumstances. I hate my job. I'm poor. I'm rich. I have an illness. I have an injury. I have a disability. Look, all, we're not saying any, I'm not saying any of these things are not important. They are important. I'm not saying they don't affect your life. I'm saying they're not the main thing about you. They're not what you lead out of. They're not what you look to. They're not what defines you. They're not what energizes you. You're not your life stage. How many people are their life stage, right? How many teenagers go, oh, I'm a teenager. I should be rebellious against my parents and, and, and do dumb things. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> All the parents go, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do that. Um, you could be like Jesus. You can, be, uh, you can live in your parents' home. You can obey and love your parents, just like Jesus did. How, how many people, they're, they're single and they say, I'm single. I should be selfish. I should date around. I should do, be part of the hookup, shackup, breakup culture. No, you shouldn't. You can be single like Jesus. You can be single like Paul. How many young families, their whole identity is, well, we're a young family, so everything should be about our kids. It should be about activities and academics and athletics and amusing ourselves to death. No, you, no it doesn't need to be about that. You can have a Christ-centered home instead of a child-centered home. And so what we see here is he's saying we need to lead it out of an identity. He gives us a two-fold identity, servant and steward, servant and steward, servant and steward. Let's talk about each of those. Here's what a servant is. A servant, and it, this is a helpful thing to, to know, a servant and a critic both see the same thing but respond very differently. A servant and a critic both see problems. The servant says, here's what a servant does. I see a problem, I see a pain, I see a pressure point. I see a need, I see that there's something wrong. And the servant says, I'd like to help. Years ago, we had this lady, she said to us, hey, um, I came to the, wel this is years ago, I came to the welcome tent, I, I, it wasn't very friendly, no one was smiling. <laughs> um, it might have been just that day, but hey, you know, but I've got a real heart for this. I would love to go to the Weekender. I'd love to be on the serving team, and I would love to use my gifts to, to make the welcome tent a more friendly place. Well, amen. That's a servant heart. Unfortunately, churches historically have a ton of people who are just critical. They listen to the preaching to criticize the preaching. They comb through the website to find something wrong with it. They look at the budget to find out what they don't like about it. They send their kids into the kids' ministry to see what's wrong with it. And what I've seen in all of my years is that most people who criticize the church are doing nothing in the church. People who criticize the budget don't give. People who criticize the church don't serve. People who criticize the mission aren't making disciples themselves. And so what a servant is, is a servant is somebody who says, I see problems, I get it. 
But I see maybe that God's give, maybe the reason that I see the problem is so that I could be part of the solution. And I wanna be humble and I wanna help. That's the heart of a servant. The other heart of a servant is, uh, I'm about, if you could say, what is servant in one word? It would be the word others. I'm about others. A servant is Christ-centered. Here's the way to think of it. Christ-centered, but others-focused. I wanna honor Christ. And some of us aren't very good servants because we're so selfish, we're so self-consumed, we're so consumed with ourselves, we can't care about others. We don't even know, some of you don't, wouldn't even know the needs in your family. You wouldn't. You wouldn't even know the needs in your community group. You wouldn't even know them, why? Because you're so consumed with yourself. You understand every environment you go to only in how it affects you negatively or positively, that's it. Not helpful, very immature, and certainly not a leader. Servant is the first thing. Second is steward. A steward basically says, everything that I have is from God. That God has given me things and they are very valuable. Here's the two principles of stewardship. What God has given me is very valuable. Time is very valuable. My body is very valuable. Money is very valuable. Spiritual gifts are very valuable. What God has given me is very valuable, and he would like a maximum return. He would like me to leverage these things for maximum effectiveness. Stewardship is a massive theme of the Bible. So there's two major themes of the Bible, salvation and stewardship. So from the garden to the city, or from Genesis to Revelation, there are two main themes, salvation which, in fact, God's gonna ask you at the end of time, what did you do with my son? That's the salvation question. And then there's the second question, which is the stewardship question, which is what did you do with my stuff? That's it. I'm telling you what's on the final exam. That's it. <laughs> what did you, those are the two questions. Uh, what did you do with my son? Did you transfer trust? Did you repent and believe? Did you call him Lord, Savior, and treasure? Did you welcome him into your life? That's the, that's the salvation question. What did you do with my stuff? Did you leverage it? Or did you, like the parable of the talents, did you bury it and hide it? So he says, this is it. And he says, the goal, if you look at me at verse two, he says, the goal of stewardship or the goal of leadership in general is faithfulness. Here's what he says. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Verse three, he's gonna begin to tell us that when you lead, or when you, here's another way to say it. When you just try to follow Jesus and help others find and follow Jesus. Or maybe this was what it would say. When you decide to be a public Christian, when you decide to step out and step up as a Christian, you know this, but let me just say it. There's going to be resistance. And so in verse three, he's saying that I'm a leader, but not everybody likes leadership. Not everybody receives it well. We wish they did. So look what he says in verse three. Here's what he says about leadership. But with me... It is a very small thing. So it's not nothing, but it's, it's the category of very, very small, okay? It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In other words, Paul's saying, I mean this with all due respect. I don't care that much what you think about me. And some of you, you're gonna have to get there. You're gonna have to get there. Some of you, you're shallow, you're superficial, and all you want is for people to like you. And I love you, so receive this. That's a very, very small goal for your life. If you want everyone to like you, sell ice cream. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Outside of the gluten people and the keto people, everybody's going to love you if you just sell ice cream. Um, but he says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What Paul tells us here, and this is an important concept, that when you step up and when you step out, when you publicly identify with Christ and when you try to help others, 
When you try to help, how do you help others? Well, you share Christ with them. You tell them about repentance and faith. Or you meet a Christian brother or sister and you try to disciple them, you try to invest in them, you try to lovingly call them out in sin in their life. Guess what? Lots of people don't like that, unfortunately. Right, we wish that, now there are certain people, right? And I thank God that for the most part, this has been the story of our church. There are certain people that's just like, well, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. I needed to grow in that. I receive it, thanks so much. There's been a whole other group of people that says, okay, that was really hard, but I repent. So it's, some just can receive, others go, I gotta repent. And then there's a whole other category, unfortunately, of people that just resist. Because what, part of what you do as a leader is you make decisions. This is, this is what, leadership is hard because of how people respond to it. And we just, we have to, I want us to be freed. I want to be freed. I want you to be freed from what other people think of you. Now there's the, he says, I, 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 he says, it means very little to me. He doesn't say it doesn't mean anything. You're a sociopath if you don't care at all, right? We, we have to have the right category of what does it mean if people don't like what I'm doing? Well, if, there's, if everybody doesn't like what I'm doing, I'm probably wrong. And that's a helpful thing to do. If there's a loud minority that doesn't like what I'm doing, Maybe they're just a loud minority. Maybe I'm touching an idol of theirs. I mean, we don't even know all the different reasons. But what happens is a leader steps out and a leader makes decisions and people don't always like it. Harvard, Harvard Business Review, not a Christian organization. <laughs> um, they did a study on leadership and they basically did this fascinating study on all these people with NBAs and why they weren't leading more. It was an interesting study. Um, and, and basically they found out that there were three reasons that people didn't lead. So the question for this study was like, why, aren't, why don't we have more leaders? Like, there's, like I told you, there's always a need for leadership. Like leaders are the lid of every organization. Why don't more people step up and lead? And they found out three reasons, and it's the same three reasons why I think no one lead, people don't lead in any organization or any church or any group or whatever. Um, the first one is they were afraid how leading would change the relationship with the people under them. Now, when you lead people, does it change your relationship with them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be extreme, but yes. Okay, that was the first concern. The second concern they had in this Harvard study is they said, well, I'm really afraid that the people under me, when I'm leading, they're gonna criticize my leadership. Now, will people criticize your leadership and you lead them? That will definitely happen. <laughs> the third thing he said, and the third reason they said that they were afraid, they said, I'm afraid that if things fail, I'll get blamed as the leader. And that will also happen. <laughs> it's like, well, that's exactly what leaders, welcome to leadership. That's what leadership is. And so Paul has to say, okay, look, he goes, I don't really care too much about what you think. But he says, let me tell you why. Look, uh, this is important. Verse four is super important. Uh, he says this. For I'm not aware of anything against myself. So, so Paul says, you're gonna judge me and then he even says, I'm gonna be judged in verse three. He says, I'll be judged by different human courts. That means public opinion. And he says, I'm not even aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So basically when you lead and when you step out to love other people, what you need to constantly do is check your own motives. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I trying to build a platform? Am I trying to make more money? Is that what this is about? Am I mad at them? Am I looking forward to confronting them? In this, that's the reason not to confront someone, by the way, yet. <laughs> you, you know, if you're, if you're looking forward to telling somebody about a sin in their life, you probably need to pray about it a little bit more. <laughs> you probably need, yeah, right? but, but this is the, what, we, what you need to do is you need to check your own conscience. Now, we don't live, we don't have silence in our, in our society. We don't have solitude. We don't have Sabbath. Because we don't have those three things, we don't know ourselves very well. You need silence, you need solitude, and you need Sabbath to know yourself. And so what Paul basically says is, I, and you can do whatever, you, however you do it, but I journal, 
I pray. I talk to other people about it. I know my motives the best that I can. I don't know my motives perfectly. There's humility in that. Paul basically says there's, there's two principles to knowing yourself. Principle one, you can't know yourself by yourself, right? You have to have other people. <laughs> you, your wife has to help you. Your, your husband has to help you. Your kids help you. Your friends help you. you. You can't see yourself by yourself. But then even after all that, you can't be the final judge of yourself. You're finite. You're ignorant. There's a lot of things you don't know. Have you ever done something you go, I don't even know why I did that. <laughs> I don't know why I screamed. I don't know why I overreacted. That's what Paul's basically saying. He's like, guys, I'm, I'm checking my own heart. I'm checking my own motives, but I don't know exactly. As far as I know, my conscience is clear. And the, by the way, if you don't have a clear conscience, that's okay. What you do is you confess. You gotta, I, I've got to do this all the time. All right, Lord, I confess. Okay, I had a wrong motive in that. I thought about that wrongly. I repent. I need to grow. And there's a cleansing of your conscience through confession. No one's gonna have a clear conscience all the time. You confess, you go, that was a wrong idea. I did that for the wrong reasons. I had the wrong perspective. I repent. But basically, Paul's saying, I don't even judge myself. Then look what he says. Verse five, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Uh, before the time, before the Lord comes. So Paul's not worried about being on the right side of history. That's a very common statement today. But being on the right side of eternity. He's saying, okay, I want, I want to make sure that when the Lord comes back, I did the right things. He says, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of you will receive his commendation from God. And then in verses six, he gets real practical about leadership. So think about it this way. He gets real high. I lead from an identity. I'm a servant and a steward. And then he basically talks about the conflict that he's going to have. And I know not all of you are going to like me leading. I know I'm going to step on your toes. Son. That's basically what he's going to say. I know you're going to question some things. We can talk about it, but at the end of the day, my conscience is clear, and this is where I'm leading. And then he's going to get real practical, and in verses 6 and 7, he's basically going to say three things. I love you. It's really good for a leader says, I love you, I'm committed to the word of God, and I see the grace of God in your life. Now, do you need more people in your life saying that to you? I do. I love you, I'm committed to the word of God, and I see God's grace in your life. Look, I want you to see it here. Verse six, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. That's the definition of love. I do things for your benefit. I do things for your good. That's the definition of love. We live in a goofy, confused culture that thinks uh, love is I do what makes you feel good. That is not love and that is certainly not leadership. Uh, leadership is often I have to do things that don't feel good right now. I have to be committed to your good and I have to be, this is kind of an interesting thought to have if you've never had this thought before. I have to be committed to future you. So current you, there's a lot more future you than current you. <laughs> so future you is gonna thank me for this one day, but current you is gonna be really upset at this conversation. That's what a mature leader thinks. We all have to do this with our kids. Current you is very upset. Current you is also seven, you know, or whatever, or 12. Future you, 18-year-old you, 22-year-old you, 32-year-old you, comes back and thanks mom and dad. He says, basically, guys, I'm doing this for your benefit. I'm committed to your good. And then he says this, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. Guys, this is all about the Bible. I'm just being biblical. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's like, look, I got two guardrails in my life. I don't say less than what's written, and I don't say more than what's written. Right? If you say less than what's written, that's theological liberalism. Right? That's like, well, I, we don't believe in hell, and I'm not going to talk about repentance, and I'm not going to confront sexual sin, and I'm not going to talk about Jesus as the only way. I'm not going to talk about all the hard truths of Scripture. I'm going to do less than what's written. We can't do that. But then he also says, we can't go beyond what's written. Right? That's what the independent, fundamentalist, religious churches do. 
That's what some parents do. They go beyond what's written all the time. Here's more rules. Here's more commandments. Here's more regulations. And then we know what happens in those homes. The kids get very religious until they can leave and then they get really rebellious. And they never really understood true Christianity because they had a home that went beyond what was written. Which leads to the third thing. Paul's gonna spend a lot of time talking about grace. He says this, that none of you may be puffed up. I don't want you to be prideful in favor against one another, verse seven, for who sees anything different in you? That's the way Paul talks about the grace of God. Listen, this is the, this next question is Paul's theology of grace in one sentence listed as a question. Here's what he says. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What Paul is doing here is he's reminding people of the grace of God in their life. He's reminding them that everything that they have is by God's grace. Let me just do that for us for a moment. I mean, it's, it, and there's so many different areas we could go to. You might say, man, the grace of God in my geography. Your life would be very different right now if you were living in North Korea or Afghanistan. Your life would be very different right now if you lived at a different time in history. You wouldn't have anything that you have right now if you lived in the third century. Right? It's like it's very, very humbling. Or how about, you know, we know that in the Western world, the number one predictor of financial success in the Western world is having a high IQ. In fact, it would be better to have a high IQ and be born poor than to be a trust fund baby with a low IQ by the time you're 40. That's how powerful being smart is in the Western world. Well, guess what? You and I had zero to do with our IQs. Zero. You didn't choose it, you can't fix it, you can't grow it, you can't increase it. You have what you have. It's incredibly humbling, right? It reminds me, of a friend of mine, he was in college ministry, and he, uh, as, a at first, he's, as a worker, uh, as a college minister, but before that, as a student, and he tells a story that he said it shaped my whole life. He said, I was, I was uh, in an elevator. He said, I remember I was in an elevator with the guy who was discipling me, and I said to the guy who was discipling me, I said, I forget the guy's name, but he said, hey, Tom, you know, he said, he said, I'm really struggling with pride right now. He said, and Tom looked at me and said, what do you have to be prideful about? <laughs> and he said, I never said that again. <laughs> you know, but as my father-in-law says, a lot of people wake up on third base and think they hit a triple. And they don't realize that, wow, okay, my parents, where I was born, my intellect, my health, not to mention all of the spiritual benefits. Salvation, forgiveness, grace, mercy, relationship with God, eternal security, the cross of Christ, the church, the Holy Spirit. It's all gifts. And so part of what, what, what leaders do is, and what every Christian does is we remind each other, I love you, I'm committed to the word of God, and I got a lot of grace. And this is all of grace. And I wanna remind you of it. But then sometimes, and this is interesting, in verse eight, Paul does something that may be uncomfortable for some of us. Um, Paul is actually, as a leader, I don't know how to say this, he's going to make fun of the Corinthians. And this is a confusing passage for people, but in verses eight through 11, Paul is going to use, let's call it sanctified sarcasm, okay? <laughs> Paul is going to mock them. Paul is going to make fun of them. So I guess you gotta go, can a leader who loves people and is committed to the word of God and wants to talk about grace, can he also make fun of people? I guess so. I want you to see this. Here's what he does. He, because, and this is an important concept. Sometimes you have to make fun of people because they're so stuck in their ways they can't see it. 
And all you have to do is you have to show them how ridiculous their religion is. You have to say that, oh, so you think that by coming to church and by putting a little bit of money in and by showing up, you think that you have a relationship with God? You have to push on people. You have to open their eyes. What was happening in Corinth is they were, uh, it was a, it's like America. It was a very wealthy, very successful city. So the Corinthians were very rich, and so they forgot about God very easily. And so in verse 8, Paul has to make fun of them. He has to use sanctified sarcasm. Look what he does. Already you have all you want. He's making fun of them. Already you have become rich. You don't need God. You don't need us. You've got everything. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. And then Paul says in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. It's interesting, when Paul says that he's become a spectacle, he's talking about a Roman tradition of taking war criminals so what the, what the Romans would do is once they won a war, they would take their prisoners and they would tie them up and they would bring them uh, at the very back of a line, they would bring them to the Colosseum to be killed. And they'd be in the very back and they'd be getting dirt over them and everybody would be standing outside watching them, knowing that they had lost. And what was next is they were heading into the Colosseum and there were two things that happened to them. Either they fought a gladiator and were killed or they were eaten by wild beasts. And so I'm reading this going, how do I talk about this stuff with us? Like the apostle Paul's like, I am willing. I understand that like, I'm gonna be a spectacle. I have very low expectations for my life. I know how people are going to view me, right? Some of us, we're so afraid for one of our neighbors to think we're weird because we're a committed Christian. What's wrong with us, right? I mean, I want you to see what Paul says here. Look, look at what he says in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. Like he's saying, I, we look like idiots. I look like a complete idiot to everybody. I was a Pharisee. I had a good job. He says, oh, but you are so wise in Christ. I led you to Christ, but now you've surpassed me. You figured out a way to follow Christ and not have to suffer. Amazing how you were able to do that. He says, we are weak. We're apostles, but we're weak, but somehow you found out how to be strong. You're held in honor. Somehow you can be a Christian and be deeply respected by your culture. Uh, we haven't figured that out yet, but we're in disrepute. And then I don't know if you ever thought about this. It's like people ask the question, well, where did Paul write Corinthians from? The answer is Ephesus. And people ask, when did Paul write Corinthians? And the answer is sometime in the 50s and 60s AD. But what people don't normally ask is, what was the condition of Paul? the author, when he wrote this. Well, the closest thing we have to his human condition when writing the letter of 1 Corinthians is verse 11. Look with me. To this present hour, in other words, right this second, as I'm writing this letter to you, I'm hungry. It's like, what? Have you ever written an email and been like, I need to get a snack? <laughs> <laughs> this guy's writing a 16 chapter handwritten letter, and he goes, I'm starving, and we're thirsty, and we're poorly dressed, and we're buffeted, and we're homeless, and we labor working with our hands, which is something the Corinthians thought was below them. Paul's basically like, I'm a tradesman and a truck driver. That's what I am. 
I do blue collar work to support my ministry. And they don't respect that. They were white collar, they were wealthy. Paul said, I do blue collar work and I do it so that other people don't have to support my ministry. And I do it so that no one can bring an offense on the gospel. And nobody can ever think I'm doing this for the money. I'll work and pay for everything on the side. That's what Paul's saying. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. We have become, you can't even believe this. Look at this. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. I don't know if you ever read this and you just go, Paul, why do you make it so hard on all of us? Like for 2,000 years, we read this stuff and we're like, what's wrong with us? I don't know if you think that. It's like, what's wrong with all of us? What are the expectations for your life? Are you willing to sacrifice for Christ in any of your in area of your life at all? Right? I mean, you read that some of you give nothing to the kingdom of God. Some of you are completely selfish and are not servant-hearted. Some of you have no idea what it means to sacrifice at all. Here's the definition of sacrifice. I give up something I love for something I love even more. That's it. That's life. Sacrifice and the discovery of the future are the exact same thing. There's a future me. There's a future other people. And I wanna be willing to sacrifice something. And you go, Paul, why did you do it? He actually tells us in verse 14, he tells us why he did such crazy things. Paul, why'd you do it? I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed. Paul's like, I said some hard things to you, but I'm checking my motives. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to wake you up. But to admonish you as my beloved children. And, he, and he's gonna tell us why. For though you have countless guides in Christ, and a guide was a tutor, a guide was a mentor, a guide was a coach, a guide was a teacher, a guide was a professor. He's like, you got lots of those. You got lots of people to help you out through your life. Here's what he says. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's what he says, and it makes sense. Even if you're not a dad or a mom, I think you still get it. But if you are a mom or a dad, you especially get it. Paul said, here's why I do it all because I view you as my kids, and I'm a dad. And I think, I think the dads in here, I think the moms here would say, I get it now. I would do it for my kids. I'd go hungry for my kids. I would suffer for my kids. I would do it. The best version of me would do these things for my kids, because there's a deep love I have for my kids. Paul's basically saying, here's what the church is. And this is, what, leadership is that, it, the best version of leadership is dad. You want leadership in one word, it's dad. It's like, that's the picture of it. Dad loves the family. Now, some of you, you didn't have a good dad. Some of you had a male presence, not a father. We get it. We, we live in a fatherless generation. One of the reasons people don't understand Christianity is because they didn't have a dad. True story. It's very hard to understand Christianity if you don't have a dad. Because God's a father. He's always been a father. What, what, what pastors are, and what leaders in general are, but this is a good way to think about the church. It's like, well, how should you... And I know I'm, I'm younger than some of you, but how should you think of me or in the pastor of a church? We're the dads. That's it. What are the elders of the church? We're the dads. That's where we're praying for some older dads. We got Mike Shepard here in his 70s. <laughs> Love Mike. It's like, we're all dads here. We're, that's what we're gonna do. What do we do? We take care of the kids. Are some of our kids rebellious? Yes. Are some of our kids younger than others? Yes. Do we love all of our kids the same? Absolutely we do. 
every pastor has two families. That's what, I feel like I have two families. I have my family at home. I've got three kids and a wife. I have my family here. And I think every Christian realizes I have a family of birth and I have a family of new birth. And they're both important families. I have a bio, biological family and I have a spiritual family. And, I, and I'm just, Paul's saying, guys, if we get that, everything else falls into line. How we relate to each other, how we repent, how we do unity, all of it. Paul says this. He says, I urge you, be imitators of me. Here's a good question of leadership. If you wanna know where do you need to grow as a leader, here's, here's what you need to ask yourself. Where would I not want people to imitate me? You don't have to tell us, but just that would be a good thing to think through. Like, do you want your kids to have your marriage? It's the, probably the best diagnostic tool to ask how your marriage is actually going. Would I want my daughter to have my marriage? Would you want the people that you love in your life, would you want them to struggle with sin the way you do? Would you want them to deal with finances the way you do? Really? Or in a good way, where, where can you say, follow me as I follow Christ? God's worked in my life. I love the Bible. I love to study the Bible. I really do. There's a lot of things wrong with me, but that's one area of my life that's going really, really well. Follow me in this area. I got a lot of areas to work on, but that'd be one area I could tell people, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, be imitators of me. And then he basically says in verse 17, I, I'm gonna send you a brother. Paul liked to send letters, but he loved to send people. He says this, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child. I have a child and I'm sending him to my other children. He's gonna be an older brother because you don't have a dad right now. So I'm gonna send an older brother. To remind you, look at this, to remind you of my body of doctrine. Doesn't say that. To remind you that Christianity is a belief system. He doesn't say that. To remind you of my ways in Christ. What Christianity is, is it's a way of life. So we need to see other people live it out. This is why we need leaders. What does a good godly marriage look like? What does a good godly family look like? What does a good godly businessman or woman look like? Many of us don't know. We've never seen it. We can't read it in a book. We have to see it lived out. He says, to remind you of my ways, is Christ, my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And then Paul ends as a dad, zealous and jealous for his children. He's worried about a few arrogant people in the church. This is always the concern of every church is some arrogant people coming in. Look what he says here. Some are arrogant. So there are some people in the church and they're arrogant. He says this, as though I'm not coming to you. In other words, Paul had promised the Corinthians he was coming. He's saying, here's what arrogant people do. They constantly contradict what the leadership says. They con they, they, nothing wrong with questions, but there is something wrong with a questioning spirit. There's, there's something wrong with a spirit of suspicion. And he's saying, there's some arrogant people. He says, but I will come to you, I promise. Dad keeps his word uh, to you soon, if the Lord wills. Now, I gotta put that in there because God's sovereign. Uh, but I, as much as it depends on me, I'm gonna get there. I'm, I'm gonna be back. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. See the contrast between talk and power, talk and power, talk and power. He says it one more time. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? What Paul is saying is there are two different types of people in the church. There are the arrogant and there are the humble. And he said, the problem with arrogant people is they talk and there's no power in their life. 
Some of you, you know, you know people like this. Some of you are people like this, maybe. You, we all know people like this. They love to gossip. They love to talk. They love to complain. They love to have the meeting after the meeting. They love to tell everybody what's wrong. They love to contradict leadership, and there's no power in their life. There's no power in their ministry. There's no power in their family. And Paul's like, it's so obvious. The kingdom of God's about power, not talk. And then he says, how do you want me to come to you? This is interesting. He's, he's talking as a dad. Do you, do you want me to come with a rod or do you want me to come in the spirit of gentleness? In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to respond, that's what leaders do, I'm gonna to respond to you based on how you treat me, based on how you come to me. Every leader needs to have two hands, a tender hand and a tough hand. And this is good to know, some of you only have a tender hand and you're a doormat and you're nice but nobody respects you. And you say yes to everything and you don't know how to say no and you don't know how to confront and you don't know how to challenge. And people walk all over you and people are prideful and arrogant. And you need to not just have a tender hand, you need to have a tough hand. Others of you just have a tough hand. And that's not right. If you just have a tender hand, you're a doormat. If you just have a tough hand, you're domineering. Jesus Christ is the greatest leader of all time. He shows us how to have the tough hand and the tender hand, right? Who does Jesus have the tough hand with? Religious leaders who won't repent. He saves his hardest words, and they are harsh and they are hard, for leaders, particularly men, who will not repent, who are willful, arrogant, unrepentant, blind, leading others in the wrong direction. What does Jesus do to the woman at the well? Tender hand. You have four husbands, you're living with a guy, let's talk about it. How about the woman caught in adultery? Tender hand. How about, you know, all the people who came to him with their problems and their pains and their pressures? Tender hand. With the disciples who wanted to understand but couldn't? Tender hand. See, Jesus Christ comes and he is, of course, we know this. He's the leader of leader. He's the great spiritual leader who says, I'm gonna be a servant. Philippians 2 says, Jesus is such a servant that he decided I'm going to empty myself. He says, I'm gonna empty myself, I'm gonna become a servant and I'm going to die a criminal's death for you. That's the picture of servanthood. I'm gonna be, the cross is all about others. The cross is all about Jesus Christ dying for you and for me. And he's gonna be, I'm a steward. A steward who says, well, how can I take what God's given me and use it for other people? So Jesus goes, well, I've got a perfect life. I'll use that. Well, I've got a relationship with God. That's perfect. I'll use that. Well, I'm the only person who could take the punishment for the entire world's sins. I can do that. So Jesus comes as a servant, Jesus comes as a steward. He is the great model. Every spiritual leader says, I'm gonna follow Jesus and I'm gonna help others find and follow Jesus. My question for you is, who do you need to lead? Where do you need to lead? Or maybe even this question, who do you need to thank for leading you? Some of you may need to write a letter this week. You need to thank your parents. You need to thank your youth pastor. You need to thank your college director. You need to thank someone who led you to Christ in high school or middle school or whatever. And you just need to be thankful for the leadership in your life that are all pictures and all are pointing back to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for leadership. Lord, I thank you that you love the church so you give us leadership. Lord, we live in a culture that misunderstands and does not value leadership. Lord, help us to be not crown-centered in our leadership, but cross-centered. To not be self-centered but to be Christ-centered. Lord, help us to be willing to suffer, to sacrifice, to serve, and to steward. We ask this in your name. Amen.